By the time it reached British airspace, coming down to London and descent, the atmosphere had turned into a bit of a party. I think probably people had drunk quite a lot. <laughs> that might have something to do with it. But it was, yeah, it was a party. It was a, a wake and a party at the same time. Aviation historian Jonathan Glancy, remembering Concorde's final passenger flight. When the aircraft landed, there was certainly a big cheer and applause. And the applause was for the machine, for the crew, for the captain. And when the aircraft landed, the captain and co-pilot had put Union Jacks out of the side windows of the cockpit. And quite, you know, it's a bit theatrical, maybe a bit camp and kitsch. But nevertheless, it was that sort of, you know, land of hope and glory moment. But this truly was, you know, the end and the end of an era. After 27 years of service, Concorde flew its last passengers on October 24th, 2003. And it was just the emotion sinking in, you know, very quietly, that this was the end of something that, from a child, you had absolutely adored, and now it was gone. But why had Concorde ended? In this final episode of Making an Impossible Airplane, The Untold Story of Concorde, we'll uncover the complex answer to that question. We'll also look at the legacy Concorde left for those who worked on it, for the airline industry, and for all of our lives. And we'll look forward to the possible return of supersonic passenger flight. I'm Nastran Tavakolifar, and this is Teamistry, an original podcast from Atlassian makers of collaborative software, including Jira, Trello, and Confluence. When Concorde landed that day at Heathrow for its final passenger flight, it wasn't alone. As a proper send-off, British Airways had not one, but three Concorde aircraft landing in succession. The other two had completed short flights before arriving. The sight of three Concorde aircraft coming into land was a last fleeting glimpse of what could have been when the project started in the early 60s, when the expectation was that this would be a regular occurrence. In a few years' time, the sight of Concorde on international airfields all over the world will be commonplace if all goes well. As they came into land, a huge banner declared, in French, Concorde, we love you. The final Air France Concorde flights were also full of emotion. Months earlier, on the 31st of May, two Concorde aircraft landed within an hour of each other at Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris. The crews shed tears, the waiting crowd cheered, many holding banners that echoed the British. Thank you, Concorde, we love you. But those were not actually the final flights of Concorde. They were still to come. Before we hear those stories, though, we need to understand just why Concorde went out of service. And we'll find out from the engineers who were there on the inside. Mike Hall and first, John Britton. As soon as those terrorists hit the Twin Tower, because until then, I think the American public had felt that they were insulated from terrorist attacks. That happens in Europe, in the Middle East, the Far East. We don't get that in America. 
And they stopped flying, Mike, didn't they? Yeah, it changed everything. Obviously, that was a huge impact. Political impact, military impact on, in the United States. The attitudes of the people changed. A lot of people don't know that the attacks of 9-11 had a huge impact on Concorde. A number of the people killed in the Twin Towers were regular Concorde customers. Plus, the attacks caused the aviation industry as a whole to have a major downturn. Soon after, when France refused to cooperate during the invasion of Iraq, there was an unofficial boycott of all things French in the US, which directly affected Air France's Concorde service. For them, and for British Airways, passenger loads were down. What wasn't helping was news coverage of Concorde. Ever since the crash, if there was any kind of operational hiccup on a Concorde flight, the kinds of issues that would come up on regular subsonic airlines, it would be reported as a major crisis. This did little to build confidence in a public already fearful of terrorism. Added to these worries were the rising costs of maintenance, about 30 times higher per passenger than a wide-body airliner. The thing is, regardless of all this happening externally, if it hadn't been for the hard work, ingenuity, and the drive of the engineers and crews maintaining Concorde, it could never have kept flying. But time was catching up with Concorde. Safety inspections to determine how long it could keep flying required a major upgrade, replacing the crown skins, those key structural supports along the top of the fuselage. So that means stripping out all the internal furnishings, all the insulation, everything, taking those top skins off the fuselage, making new skins, riveting them back on, and then rebuilding the aircraft. And the cost of that was becoming prohibited. To better understand the situation, you need to know about a key player behind the scenes, Airbus. This pan-European company was formed in the early 70s to challenge the US when it came to wide-body airliners like the 747. By the early 2000s, Airbus was a world leader in aviation, of course. Plus, they were the ones who actually provided key support to keep Concorde in the air when it came to parts and so on. But at this time, Airbus was looking to the future and their coming A380 wide-body subsonic passenger jet. Plus, even the minor incidents being reported about Concorde threatened to tarnish Airbus's reputation. So they announced in April of 2003 that they would not support Concorde beyond October of that year. And so all these things were mounted up. There was a double whammy. There was the possible increase of costs to continue operating and the decrease in revenue due to the terrorist attacks. So as soon as those two graphs cross over, as soon as the accountants start doing costs against income, there's no emotion or anything. It's, it's losing money, pull the plug. The end of Concord was not because of a dramatic incident or accident. It was the stroke of an accountant's pen. In backroom discussions, Air France let British Airways know that they would cease operations in May of 2003. If BA wanted to continue indefinitely, they'd have to take on the full burden of maintenance costs. Publicly, however, British Airways and Air France announced it was a joint decision to end Concorde service. 
And that hit Concord maintenance supervisor Ricky Bastin pretty hard. It was an absolute bombshell when this announcement was made because things were improving. Things were improving. It, we reckon it's going to be a couple of years before we got back to where we were. It was a, there's near a disbelief. I, I, I couldn't quite believe that this was going to be the end. A great shame. Great, great shame. But John and Mike, although saddened by the announcement, weren't surprised. It had flown millions of passengers. It had done a fantastic job. And it had done all that supersonically. So we were tinged with sadness because it was finishing. But we could see that the problems that we were going to encounter if we carried on operating it. So in some respects, we were upset and in other situations, we were, oh, thank goodness for that. Relieved. Because <laughs> day-to-day managing it was getting... Getting difficult. Difficult. But as I mentioned, the last passenger flights weren't Concorde's final act. The remaining planes had to be flown to places around the world where they'd become museum pieces. In France, the very last flight was on June 27th, bringing Concorde BVFC back home to where it had been built, in Toulouse. It included a very special passenger. I was invited on this last flight. We've heard from Dudley Collard throughout this series. He was one of the first aerodynamicists to work on Concorde in France until he retired in 1992. But just think about something for a second. Back in 1949, when Dudley had moved from England to America, that trip took about a week crossing the Atlantic on a passenger boat. 20 years later, he'd helped to build a plane that covered that same distance in just over three hours. It was a funny feeling before it took off, particularly in Paris. And I'm thinking, gosh, all that work we did on it, and we're just going to go on a last flight. Dudley, along with producer Pedro and I, we all climbed aboard the Concorde aircraft on display at Aeroscopia. Now, that just happens to be the exact same one that Dudley flew in on on that day. I think I sat about, about here on the last flight of the aeroplane. Have a seat. Thank you so much. When do we take off? Um, thinking of French, and how they're quite disciplined, really, but they do have moments. And we taxied in, I was in this seat, and of course could look out, and we landed in Toulouse, and there were crowds of people. Ah, and there were all the pompiers. The pompiers are the firemen with their fire equipment and trucks and things, all on the top brandishing their empty champagne bottles. So, that's French. Someone else very special on that flight was none other than André Tourcart, the famed pilot who'd taken the French Concorde prototype on its very first flight back in 1969. And he said to me that he was furious, really, because he said, this aircraft has been cancelled for political reasons. And I said, yes, but one thing we have to think is that the aircraft was launched for political reasons and we had about 20 years or more. Fabulous job. 
British Airways' final Concorde flight on November 26, 2003, was the last time the plane would ever fly. On that day, Concorde BOAF, the last one to be built, returned to the place of its birth. As it flew over Bristol, thousands of people gathered to see it, some of whom had dedicated their careers to building the plane. Pedro and I talked to Mike and John about that day while we were at Aerospace Bristol Museum in Filton. Where did it land? It landed on the airfield here. Like the airfield right here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Where we, were you? Were you out on the airfield? Were yeah, you? I was on the side of the airfield by the, the flight ops building there. And as the aircraft came in, Mike Bannister and Les Brody opened the DV windows and they waved the Union Jack out. <laughs> and, you know... How did you feel? That was a great moment. For Mike, the final flight was quite emotional. I was one of those lucky people who got to hear the shutdown, the very last shutdown on the Olympus 593 engine and on that sort of windy, cloudy November day, along with all the other dignitaries who were there to say goodbye to the aircraft and see the end of it. This is what I, I think is so compelling about this story, is now I understand that the end of Concord is the end of a dream, it's the end of a vision for British aviation industry, but you could also say for aviation in general, but also for people in general. This kind of work, this kind of innovation, this kind of thinking. And you're talking about the iconic status. Yeah. And now it's gone. Like so many of those things are gone. It's yeah. not just the end of Concorde. No, but a lot of those engineers that worked on Concorde worked on Airbus. So we've got innovative products coming out of Airbus. Okay, not supersonic ones, but we did future studies on ASTs, Advanced Supersonic Transport, and we've got models of those, and you've got the innovation still going on. We've flown an Airbus now with all, well, flying on cooking oil, basically, you know, environmentally friendly. We've got those developments. You've got electric aircraft being developed. You know, I, things change, don't they? But I can't imagine that anyone's going to build museums to all the airplanes that are currently, any of the passenger airplanes that are currently out there right now. You know what I mean? Maybe not. <laughs> like, like. You can tell what Pedro is trying to do here, right? He's trying to dig deeper for John's emotional reaction to the end of Concorde. But John doesn't see it that way. Even though most of this series has been about looking back, John looks to the future and how Concorde continues to influence us today. For example, in the alloys developed for Concorde, and then there was the spin-off, uh, the spin-off from materials like stainless steels, you know, which are used in everyday, you know, you've got stainless steel saucepans in, yeah. your, in your kitchen. Mm -hmm. Some of it was used on the spacecraft. A lot of those high-temperature steels are used in uh, nuclear power plants. Mm -hmm. In the reactor cell, you know, you need high-temperature stainless or titanium or whatever in those. So there were lots of spin-offs from this. Aviation journalist Michel Polico also has a list of contributions we can thank Concorde for. Donc voilà, beaucoup de choses on doit à Concorde. On doit à Concorde les freins au carbone moderne. We owe a lot of things to the Concorde. The modern carbon brakes that all airlines use around the world, the in-flight fuel transfer systems, the know-how of the European aerospace industry, particularly the French and the British, owe a lot to the Concorde. Doit beaucoup à Concorde et les autres Européens qui sont rentrés dans les consortiums Airbus, etc., 
and the other Europeans that entered the Airbus consortiums were able to use all of that. But it's important to recognize that the rebirth of the European aerospace industry after World War II was thanks to all the work that was done and all the knowledge that was gained while making the Concorde fly and to making it fly well for 27 years. Michel is talking about perhaps Concorde's biggest legacy, Airbus. The international collaboration behind Concorde inspired the way Airbus works today. Even Concorde's building process, where bits are fully made in various locations and then assembled elsewhere, became Airbus's modus operandi. Mike Hall. Now, that was a result primarily of Concorde. The necessary working together of Concorde, putting all the parts together and getting different companies who spoke different languages, both technically and mechanically, if you will, French and English and all the other suppliers had to work together to get this aircraft to work to the same appropriate standards. The creation and success of Airbus cemented Europe's place at the forefront of the aviation industry. And not just Europe, but France, who play a major role in Airbus, with the UK delegated to a supporting position. But could the UK have become, back in the 60s, a world leader in wide-body airliners, if it hadn't sunk all its hopes and investment into Concorde? Could British Airways have flown a fleet of completely British-designed and built planes? It's all hypothetical, of course, but it's worth noting when considering the overall success of Concorde. The other big hypothetical question is, will passengers fly supersonically again? First off, I'll answer one of the most Googled questions about Concorde. Can any of the remaining planes fly again? Now, you don't want to say never, but after 20 years of sitting still, some out in the elements, there's just no way they're structurally sound enough to be deemed airworthy. I asked Katie John if she thinks she'll be flying at the speed of sound anytime soon. I think it's pretty unlikely. I mean, ever since Concorde retired, we've been hearing, yes, the next generation is only five years away, five years away, five years away. So I think it's probably very unlikely that I'll ever go on a supersonic flight. But maybe, just maybe, Katie might fly supersonic one day. It's about time to enter a new era of supersonic travel. Time to turn the future into the present. It's about time. Boom. Supersonic. The only contender out there now is Denver's Boom. That clip is from their press release. This startup has been promising for a few years that they will build a new supersonic passenger jet, which will be called... Overture. Sculpted for speed and safety. Engineered for a sustainable future. Boom got a huge boost in the last couple of years as major carriers, including United, American and Japan Airlines, all placed pre-orders. But it's unclear how binding these agreements are. We only have to think back to all those options placed on Concorde in the 60s, after all. In fact, a lot of the same challenges Concorde faced over half a century ago are still with us. Not only in terms of technology, but the cost of flying supersonically. Eric Tegler is a Forbes aerospace columnist who's been writing about the industry for over 20 years. 
He believes there is a market for travel that's faster than the speed of sound. But at the right price. And it's not a price that Boom can deliver supersonic flight at, nor has anyone else been able to demonstrate that they could do that. If you can make supersonic flight comparable to a Southwest Airlines ticket on a flight from, let's say, Miami to Phoenix, yeah, they're all for it. But if they have to pay a premium that is probably five times that number to be generous, uh, sorry, not going to work. Not to mention that in the past decade, accelerated by the pandemic, a new technology has emerged that cuts down on the desire for supersonic travel. What you and I are doing right here, connecting via the internet, is saving more time than going to the airport, jumping on an airplane and flying to see you face-to-face. So, zoom, not boom. Despite the challenges, though, Boom is confident they will have a prototype built in a few years and will be flying paying customers by the end of the decade. Eric isn't so sure. I don't believe Boom will be in business by the end of the decade. They will use up the capital that they have. They've managed to generate about $270 million worth of investment thus far. They're going to need probably, conservative estimates say, somewhere in the area of 50 to $60 billion to get a supersonic airliner to market. Thus far, they've raised around 5% of that. So they have, you know, the financing challenge is bigger than the technical challenge. One major technical challenge to supersonic flight is, of course, the sound. But that's not something that Boom will be dealing with. And that's uh, evident simply by its name. You know, they're a supersonic airliner company called Boom. So obviously, they're not looking to solve the noise problem. That was always part of their value proposition. We're going to be first to market because we're not going to tackle that. We're going to fly supersonic over the oceans, over the Atlantic, over the Pacific. But that isn't good enough for NASA. Now, we are prepared to help open the doors to a new market of commercial supersonic air travel over land and cut our flight time in half. That clip is from NASA's public YouTube channel. They've partnered with Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works division to produce the X-59 experimental aircraft, which currently seats only a single pilot. It is a very narrow, pointy aircraft. The whole point of that being to delay the formation of a shock wave on the nose. Instead, it will create a series of smaller shock waves over various parts of the plane to produce loud thumps instead of sonic booms. Once the X-59 is ready, NASA will recreate, sort of, the Oklahoma boom tests of 1964. We will fly the X-59 over a number of U.S. communities to collect data on what sound level people consider acceptable. National and international regulators will then use this data to consider lifting the current bans on commercial supersonic travel over land. I would expect the upcoming test that NASA does to be largely successful, and from that, a technology and a design metrology that Lockheed Martin will develop that will ultimately lead it to a supersonic airliner one day in the hazy future. You see, while the X-59 will never carry passengers, the hope is that it will point the way towards how to build passenger planes that don't create a sonic boom, explains Eric. 
we're probably looking at something in the neighborhood of 100 passengers or so, a la Concord. But there's no guarantee that you will be able to scale and achieve the same effects in terms of noise reduction. However, they do know a lot about these things at Skunk Works, and I'm sure they already have some ideas for the shape of a passenger transport. Now, I should say we did reach out to Boom and Lockheed Martin, but they were unable to participate in the podcast. But, as Eric says, if supersonic passenger travel seems just as impossible today as back in the 60s, then should we even be trying to bring it back? I mean, maybe our focus should be on sustainable transport instead of speed. After all, it seems many of the promises of Concorde never came true. The idea that technology will make our lives better, I think more people than ever now realize that that is not necessarily the case. It improves some aspects of our lives and considerably worsens other aspects of our lives. That said, Eric believes there is a very good reason to keep chasing the supersonic dream. If we continue to embark on these projects and explore these ideas and we do it in a fashion as a team, then there is value in that. And I think some of the central things that you've been examining with respect to Concord as with respect to other issues are teaming ideas, the dynamics of a team, how that works, how people come together and work together and how they reach a goal. I think we're losing some of that today and it is becoming uh, more difficult for people to work together in team settings. Yves Gourinard feels that the story of Concord is evidence that by harnessing our differences, we can find the inspiration to do something amazing. We have qualities and defects due to our history and we have to go together. Of course, that's on one side the, the whiskey and the cigar, and on the other side, the red wine. And uh, yes, but that's not a joke. It's a question of character. We are Gaulish. You are Saxon. And uh, yes, and uh, we are made to work together because we compensate our uh, qualities and defects one uh, with the others. Michel Polico is confident that the heights Concorde achieved, metaphorically speaking, will happen again. It is beautiful that some dreams can be realized and uh, it happens. Men walk on the moon. Men like me flew at Mach 2. It's fabulous, fabulous, it's fabulous. So I am positive some people after me will live some fabulous things. When we started the series back in episode one, I asked, why Concord? Well, beyond the incredible technical achievement, there's something emotional at its core. John Britton. Our old boss, Ted Tolbert, was asked what three words for him described the aircraft. And he said, speed, power, and beauty. And the greatest of these is beauty. When we visited Ricky Baston, his front room was covered in Concorde photos and mementos. My room here seems festooned with pictures of the airplane. Family pictures go in the bedroom. This room is Concorde only. <laughs> and it stuff's everywhere. 
it's very difficult to be dispassionate about the aeroplane because of her beauty. It's a very emotional thing and it's very difficult to put your finger on what it is about it. But there was something about the character of the aircraft and the people involved with her as well. And that's something that's going to stay with me from reporting on this story. The way Concorde has impacted so many lives. I can't think of any other airplane that has inspired such love and such devotion. I'll be honest, I do a lot of investigative work, and that means that I have to be objective and a bit detached and not become part of the story. But with Concorde, I really couldn't help it. I even wear a little Concorde pin on my jacket these days. And the thing is, as much as I was moved by people's emotional connection to Concorde, I was also surprised by how some of the people we spoke to were really matter-of-fact about it all. And I'm talking about Dudley Collard here. You have to think that you see it completely different light if you worked on it, as I did, to somebody who um, just takes it because it's they want to get from A to B as comfort and as fast as possible and so on. Air France offered a flight to New York and back on it as a little gift just before I retired. And so we went on and here are the people getting on it and so on. I walk up the steps and I look down and I think, oh, my God, look at the problems we have with that. And I look over here, oh, there's another lot. And so for us, they were a series of more or less um, unsolvable problems that we had to sort out quickly. This was right at the end of our time recording, just before we headed home. As I said, when I started working on this podcast, I didn't know that much about Concord, and I certainly didn't feel emotional about it. But for my producer Pedro, the lifelong Concord fan, who'd never seen one up close and whose idea this whole series was, this trip took on a really deep meaning for him. As we were packing up our recording equipment, Pedro was off talking to Dudley, who reached into his pocket and handed something small to Pedro. They both got really serious, and I thought, wait a second, is Pedro crying? So I quickly turned on one of the microphones. So, Pedro, what what did Dudley Collard just give you? Well, as we were walking away from the plane and saying our goodbyes, he's like, uh, you know, I understand you really like Concorde, and it means a lot to you, and airplanes and such. I have a little something for you. And he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out (laughs) this sort of nondescript piece of metal that's like you know just kind of you'd see it lying on the ground somewhere and it's like a shop or something and it's just this weirdly tooled piece of metal and he says that's a piece of concord and then we both started crying it was really nice it was really sweet it's it's just something that tugs at your heartstrings and gets into your head and You cannot ignore a thing of beauty and function, I don't think. Nigel Ferris, who was there in the 60s when Concorde was born. The fact that it turned out to be what it was, how do you see, you can't fall in love with an airplane, but it was was just a lump of metal and plastic and so on. That's not a very nice thing to say about Concorde, metals and plastics, but it was. That's it, purely and simply. But what it actually did and was, and show to people 
what could be done with a little bit of thought and ingenuity. What an achievement of aviation Britain and France had brought about. Supreme combined technology had shown the rest of the world a clean pair of heels. Concorde and the men who built and flew them have left their mark in the skies. You've been listening to Making an Impossible Airplane, the untold story of Concorde on T-Mystery, an original podcast from Atlassian. If you visit atlassian.com slash T-Mystery, you can check out some of the behind-the-scenes photos of Pedro and I geeking out over Concorde. There's also transcripts of every episode and a full bibliography of all our research sources. And please, leave us a rating and review in your podcast app. Pedro Mendez was this season's writer and showrunner. Rehmatullah Sheikh was the show producer and Mark Angley, our sound designer. Mary Drew Brown was our video editor. Executive producers were Karen Burgess and Carla Hilton. Our Atlassian team included Jamie Austin, Natalie Mendez, Karina Philofandeth, and Shannon Winter. A special thanks to Brooklyn's Museum, Aerospace Bristol, and Aeroscopia for all their help. This series is dedicated to the memory of Ted Talbot, who passed away while we were in production. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Farr. Thanks so much for listening. Mm-hmm.